0: Welcome to a new episode of the China Full Expert podcast. And today it's all about global education. And we have an expert on education in Asia, Brantley. Welcome, Brantley.
1: Hi, my name is Brantley. I have had a relationship with China since 1993. So this marks my 30th anniversary. And I'm coming to you today from Hanoi, Vietnam, where I'm working on my new project.
0: Friendly, why did you come to China in the first place? And how did you come to Vietnam?
1: My parents moved to Hong Kong in 1993. I was already going to university, so I didn't move. But because of them, I had the opportunity to start engaging. I guess you could say in that way, I'm sort of second generation engaged with China. And uh, I came and I thought, this is really interesting. I want to be a part of what's going on here. And I stuck around. For Vietnam, just same opportunities, lots of development going on in the region. The work that I do is all about developing new schools, a lot of focus on education in Vietnam. So just getting started, not as much to share, but very excited about the possibilities here.
0: And how did you get into education in the first place?
1: When I first arrived in China, um, there were very few opportunities because there was a big localization push at that time. So I taught English, I teach English poorly, so I decided to leave teaching English. I worked in Shanghai in advertising, market research, and then when I felt like there were more emerging opportunities in education around 2006, pivoted back to education started working in developing schools and also developing different programs for both Chinese nationals and for international students.
0: We had this a lot, uh, English teachers trying to pivot into other careers. Do you have any advice how to do that? How to, when you're like a full-time teacher, how to take another career? Teachers
1: often underestimate themselves. And what I would say is that a lot of the skills that teachers have are transferable. But what you need to do is identify an employer who understands that. So you need, as a teacher, not to speak as you speak. You can't speak as though you're teaching to other teachers. You must start to think about using language that corporates understand or startups understand as opposed to just focusing on what your identity has been as a teacher. So I think there's a lot of opportunities. It's often about the way that you pitch and sell yourself. Don't expect others to understand what your skills are as a teacher. You've got to sell them.
0: And now you're a real expert on the education system in China. So what would you say are the key differences between the Chinese and the U.S. education system? And where would you say can both learn from each other?
1: So there's huge structural differences between China and the U.S. People will understand China is largely standardized and centralized. Obviously, curriculum is highly centralized. And the United States doesn't have, we don't have national education standards in the U.S. There's significant variability among states and school districts that you don't find in China, even across urban and rural and across different provinces. So as everybody knows, China has ultimately Gaokao, that's how you get into university. They have Zhongkao. that's how you get into high school. You do not have a similar system that's reflected in the US. But one of the things that I also love to focus on is the misconceptions. So we often look at Chinese education as though it's highly rote, right? It's all memorization. There's no creativity. There's no space for innovation and entrepreneurship. That is what I would love to just debunk today. There's so much powerful thinking going on in the Chinese education that is not rote, There are seeds and elements of critical thinking across a lot of Chinese education. There's a respect for teachers, although it's diminishing uh, over time, it's still there. And there is a heavy, heavy emphasis, right, on education as the ultimate path to a better future for Chinese nationals. Parents believe that. Students believe that. And in the U.S., the belief is, is in flux at the moment. There's a lot of sense that the education system is really failing kids in the U.S., So the only thing that I would say on the podcast, which I always used to say to my students, Western students and particularly American students will talk about something before they're an expert. They are happy to share their opinion even when they potentially know very little about a topic. Many Chinese students feel that they cannot share their opinion until they are expert in things. And what I would say to them is they should share their opinion. Don't mistake not sharing and not active brainstorming at a first meeting for a lack of creativity or a lack of ability to innovate. It's that you harness it differently in the two systems. You often get to a very similar place.
0: And I guess the Chinese will get to be better experts this way, right? If they practice more and they focus more and they take more time to learn. So how would you say Chinese students profit from the high performance pressure in the education system and where do they you know, where do they suffer?
1: One of the things that I think about the high pressure and performance is this, in China, you could potentially look at 90% of the population feels that they are under high pressure and striving for performance. In the United States, if you take the top 10% or the top 15% of students, I think they feel equally the same pressure. It's just a question of scope. So it's not that the Chinese pressure is necessarily higher, it's just that it's being experienced by more people and a larger percentage of the population. How does it benefit? You could say, you know, rising tide lift all boats, right? That the sense that everyone is striving and that everybody is really functioning at China speed, we can look at that as a negative, and of course there's downsides, mental health gets raised a lot. But at the same time, you could also, you know, celebrate that that results in a lot of focus. And in my case, with my students, a lot of love for school. The only thing I would say is that for the students that it doesn't work for students who who have different learning challenges, or who they need differentiation, right, the system as it exists doesn't work well for them. Those are the students who are really, really struggle within the Chinese system. Um, and in that sense, I think that you don't have as much diversity of options as that you as as you do in, in the west
0: so would you say china needs more diversity or more room for diversity
1: i would say absolutely long term china is going to need to be able to support different types of learners and you will see that with uh, more diagnosis. When I first started living and working in China, I mean, nobody was talking about mood disorders. Nobody was talking about anxiety and depression. And now that's being talked about across society as a whole. And so I would say that um, certainly outside of mood disorders, you have learning differences such as autism or spectrum disorders or ADHD And um, there is going to be a need to accommodate those types of learners and further knowledge about special education. I think the government is also aware of that, the need, the, the greater need for special education in a Chinese landscape.
0: So if you take Chinese students out of public school and put them in a private school where the school follows your curriculum, so what would be the advantage and what would they lose if they leave this very organized system?
1: What you find in China is that through the teaching of a lot of Western curriculum, many of the attributes of the Chinese public schools come along with the students. I find, I mean, students define the school, right? So if the students are striving, it really doesn't matter what curriculum they're in. The students are going to find a way to try to achieve within that curriculum in, in the cases, at least in which I have engaged. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think many, many students in China, as with many people in China, are Uh, I'm not trying to give huge, you know, gross stereotypes or generalizations here, but in my general experience, they're great at at goal setting and they're great at achieving those goals. And that the same goes for education.
0: So if Chinese students want to be international, have an international lifestyle, study abroad and pursue an international life, maybe even learn an open mindset and open their mouth before they are an expert. So how can they do this?
1: The, The very basic low hanging fruit is language proficiency. And I know that when we talk about an AI world and how quickly we have translation software, there can be a question around communication. But they, the reality is that there has to be continued focus on proficiency in English. And some of the uh, initiatives that we've seen to shut down training centers and to turn focus away from a lot of the centers where students learned English, I do think is problematic for long-term integration into an international lifestyle. Yes, 20% of the world's population speak Mandarin, but that doesn't mean that that necessarily integrates you into that lifestyle. The other thing, too, is learning how to walk in other shoes, learning how to have empathy, learning how to understand thinking from different points of view. So, yes, exposure to international curriculum is helpful. Opportunity to participate in exchange programs or international abroad. But at the same time, just doing those programs doesn't really mean that you can walk in the shoes of others and understand things from different perspectives, and so I think um, the Chinese education system does fall short in helping try to help students uncover bias and understand things from different perspectives. I would say that that's one of the real critical things for engaging with the outside. Um, and look, it's often talked about as global citizens, right? What does it mean for Chinese students to try to engage as the world in the world as global citizens?
0: So if you go there as an American entrepreneur and you try to change the system in some way, create value, how do you differentiate?
1: My approach was always about being student-centered, which is different than a lot of what students experience. Often what's at the center is data in terms of grades or the teacher The teacher is the sage on the stage, right? They're not the guide on the side helping students get to the answer. And I would say the same holds true for business. You've got to focus on getting it right, not on being right. And that's very difficult, both in business and in learning. And if we can guide students to understand how to get there, to enjoy and embrace the journey, and not to be only focused on the outcome, we get to a much better place. But that's something that requires a lot of work in a system that is is typically focused on outcomes.
0: So how can you support parents to also give their children kind of environment at home which which helps this.
1: Number 1, put the phone down and talk to your ch- your kid. Um the number of students that I had in China who didn't know exactly what jobs their parents had was always surprising to me. So in the sense of that sit down at the dinner table or in any, you know, context that you can and actually talk to keep conversation going, to keep the exchange going is really key. It's not necessarily the dynamic. So the dynamic is often just the push, right? You've got to do this, do this, do this, do this. You've got to do your homework. And there's not a recognition for that soft skill learning that happens just through through human communication. And I would say in China, if you think about the entrepreneurs and the brilliant minds that have shaped China today from a from a work perspective so many of the entrepreneurs who emerged in the early 90s who were incredibly successful through China's transformation they are some of the most personable interesting fun great conversationalists great human connectivity great ability to to engage with others and i think that the young generation needs Needs to ensure that they stay able to connect with all different types of people as opposed to just be you know, great at studying. Also, I mean, go to a restaurant anywhere in China and look around at how many tables have you know, half of the folks at the table engaged on a device and not connecting with the people at the table.
0: Do, do you have any idea how to restrict phone use in family time or get parents to restrict the phone? Because that's a big, big thing, I think, these days.
1: I think it starts with parents, number one. Parents set the tone. Are parents willing to focus on being present with their child? And this is global. This is not just about China. Or are you modeling the behavior that all you do is spend time on your phone, and therefore, why shouldn't your child? I think it starts with parents. you got to walk the walk. right? You can't nag your children into obedience. You can, but I mean, I think less successfully than trying to guide them. The other thing too, and just I would say this for parents, all right, if we're gonna, young children today are gonna grow up in a world in which AI will be a part of their lives. And one of the unique human characteristics that we retain is our ability to be adaptable, which is different to machines. And so you've got to give your child a small experiences and they shouldn't have to be elite, you know, summer camps that cost a fortune just to diversify your child's experience. you know. Do you expose them to different foods, right? Okay, you know, do you, do you take them to experiences that maybe they really don't want to do, right? Do you let your child make all the decisions about, you know, they drive the bus, they, they make the decisions about what the family does? Or does the family have values around what they think, are, you know, is important and matters? Like, do you teach your children to do anything that's hands-on? I think one of the greatest crises that we have um, in general education is the restriction of art, art programs, woodshop, you know, working with your hands, doing not just Legos where you build the Lego because the box shows you the picture of the car and you copy it, but putting children into environments where they're they have to push their brains to be adaptable. I think is is going to be really key for how we as you know humans stay competitive. With machines in, in the reality that little kids will face.
0: Do you feel the Chinese school system that they give enough room to this and that they also educate the parents enough to do this? And what is the role of international schools?
1: So let's just start backwards and break it down, right? In China, you have public state schools, then you have international curriculum schools who are allowed to teach Chinese nationals, and then you have international schools that can only educate children of uh, foreign workers, right? So foreign passport holders. So the schools for the children of foreign workers are facing a hugely changing landscape with the shift of, you know, the, the size and nature of the international population in China. So let's not talk about what the school for the children of foreign workers are doing. I think we should expect that the strong will survive and the weakers will not because Chinese nationals can't theoretically attend those schools. If we look at international curriculum for Chinese nationals, I think there's a few trends that are impacting the market. One is When are Chinese families choosing to send their kids abroad? Because if you're choosing an international curriculum school, whether that's in first grade or whether that's in 10th grade, you are making a choice that you will send your child abroad for higher education. Because although at certain schools they would be allowed to sit Zhongkau and allowed to sit Gaokao in that case, the reality is that you've probably made that choice because the international curriculum schools will not best prepare your children for Chinese university for those families, I think you really have to look closely at whether parents will choose to send their children abroad earlier, or if they will continue to enroll in those uh, international curriculum schools. But what I think you should anticipate in the coming few years is higher level of regulatory. So meaning... Many of those schools, if I take Shanghai as an example, there's 21 approved schools to offer international curriculum to Chinese nationals, 21 approved schools. At the time that I departed China last year, there were 100 operational, at least. You should expect, anticipate a regulatory tightening where certain schools who do not have licenses in the, in the sense that uh, they should will be expected to comply and to follow the regulation and they will come under that umbrella of being allowed to teach international curriculum. Uh, I think some won't make it and I think the impact for parents is really, can you get into one of the schools that's legitimately operating, meaning that you can retain your student registration, which is called 学籍 in Chinese, or not? Um, and the, and I'm just telling if there's local parents on the line listening to this, keep your child's 学籍 if you plan to keep your child in China, even through high school. You should not be cavalier about giving up your registration within the Chinese national system because you never know what could happen. All right, you, you, you could be at a school that was then required to shut down or to change. The third piece is public schools. And I think a lot of parents feel like they can keep their child in public school for a certain duration, whether that's up to sixth grade or up to 10th grade. But then if they want them to go abroad, they should transition them to international curriculum for at least the last three years. That I agree with, because I think that while the best and the brightest of China can go to Chinese public high schools and can go abroad for university and do great and thrive. If you've had exposure to international curriculum before you leave China, you're at a great advantage in terms of, again, those soft skills and then that transitioning because international universities want students that can participate in the classroom. And if you can't participate because you've never been in an environment in which participation is valued, then you will be at a disadvantage. You may not be able to get into as good a school and you may not do as well when you get there.
0: So I understand in the past there were afternoon schools which might have such an international add-on to a public school and now they have been partly forbidden or there's a very difficult situation for these schools. How will, will this impact the, the chance of Chinese parents to get an international education for their kids?
1: What really was impacted in terms of shutdown was training centers, right? Major, large-scale language training centers and a lot of centers that were doing training for national exams, right? Not just for international curriculum. I do think that there are still boutique firms operating um, and available, particularly in the larger cities, I think what's really challenging about this situation is that it actually doesn't contribute to equity and equality, right? What it does is it contributes for families that are willing to pay very large numbers for tutoring and for access, they will continue to have access. It's that on in general for a larger band of students, they will have less access to that English language training training, and ultimately it disadvantages them on the international landscape. It's incredibly important to watch this space with what the tightening ultimately looks like around allowing uh, local access to international education. Will it go away? No. Will it reduce? Quite possibly, especially if it's not aligned with the, with the value system, the general direction of pursuits around equity and equality, it, it will be it will be challenging. So I think a lot of parents will turn to online options uh, because they won't be able to go face to face to brick and mortar, but certainly will do online tutoring.
0: So what would you describe the challenge of international entrepreneurs in China in this education industry who still want to play a major part here?
1: Number one, how deeply and how well do you understand? So start with regulatory. You must, must understand how to read and interpret policy. You cannot pursue what your perception of what is best. You have to understand the policy framework in which you're working. In that sense, too, there's tons of opportunities. First of all, Absolutely. Teachers are highly in demand. So if you're somebody who wants to be an education entrepreneur, but you can't imagine spending any time in a school, I would sort of question that motivation. I would say, you know, listen, if you're within a school, you can analyze what the needs are and and you start from there. But if you say, oh, I just want to do education, but I don't ever want to be in a school, I would say probably wrong, wrong area. Um, You can't just rely on test prep. As that's not an entrepreneurial pathway that makes any sense. But certainly the opportunities for great pay packages and very legitimate professional development and educational settings is available in China. So if you have any interest in teaching or being a school administrator, China is an absolutely ripe with opportunity to do so. I know many people who were promoted much more rapidly in, in school situations in China than they would have been in the West. So I would say start with giving a serious consideration for spending time at a school, spending time as a teacher, mastering a particular curriculum, whether that's IB, International Baccalaureate Curriculum, or AP Curriculum, or Cambridge Curriculum. Pick an international curriculum and decide that you're going to become a real expert at that curriculum. Number three, it's about patience and time, right? I think if you invest the time in the education sector in China, there's so many opportunities because there's so much demand. It's certainly one of the areas for expats that's not going away. You can absolutely command an expat package. Your housing will be paid for. You'll have great medical insurance. You'll have a trip home every year. You'll have relocation bonuses. And you don't even find that in a lot of other industries these days.
0: There is different expectations and also different markets. So there is very well paid uh, teachers. And there's probably also teachers who don't have so good jobs So probably the the key is to get the right education first, and then to find the right job, right?
1: If you really want a, a crack at some of the best and highest paying positions in China as an expat, you should have a teaching credential from an outside from your home country, or from another, you know, you should have a US public school teaching license, or you should have a QTS from the UK, you know, you should have a PGCE. I mean, you, you you should get the credentials. You do need them. And there are tighter and tighter regulations around the foreign expert card for teachers, which I think is a good thing. I mean, you know, you, you back in the day, right, there were a lot of people who shouldn't have been teaching. And so I think tightened restrictions are great because it ensures the safety of children, but um, you should get the credential.
0: So now we are 2023, and there are many very international Chinese and also Vietnam professionals in the education system. So if you source teachers for your business, would you still source international pets as we call them, or would you go for locals, and why, and what would be your judgment?
1: So if we, again, if we focus on those schools for Chinese nationals that are teaching international curriculum, I think that you should have a blended team. I think you should absolutely... Hire the best and the brightest of the Chinese nationals, many of whom at this point have studied abroad and returned to China and want to work in education. Um, And you should invest heavily in those individuals, right, in their professional development and their opportunities. Um, But you should also bring in uh, teachers from other places. And by the way, not just Westerners, right? The flexpats. You should be looking across the world. You should be focused on uh, teachers from India. You should be looking at teachers from the Philippines. You should be looking at teachers from Sri Lanka. I mean, it's from Turkey. I've worked with, with people from everywhere, from Africa, right? I think that you certainly should not have this, the mindset of just hiring from Western countries. That's a, that's a terrible idea. Because again, it increases the perspectives And it challenges assumptions and it helps work on bias within the community because people hold different ideas. So what I would say is absolutely hire both if you have the ability to do so. Um, I would just say teachers often teach how they were taught. And so um, putting in different tasks. So we have had a lot of experience running assessment centers where you don't only do an interview. You put teachers who are applying for jobs also through tasks Uh, written tasks and panel tasks. And you see, you know, might give them a task and then they get 48 hours to complete it. And then they come back to you. And I just would say diversify your modes of assessment for hiring, because that will ensure you have a more diverse group of teachers that are coming in and think heavily about your leadership, right? So obviously, if you have a group of flexpats who have some interest in Chinese language, I do think that that's an advantage, right, at least from a cultural respect perspective. You don't want people showing up who say, oh, TIC, you know, this is China, all those things that are just very outdated. People have to really want to be there.
0: I understand. Yeah. So you want people who are qualified, but who also really want to be in this target country because it's kind of part of their life planning, right?
1: Absolutely they're looking for opportunity. They want to teach some of the best and brightest students in the world. I mean look, China has has those in abundance.
0: Yeah. So what are you really thankful for if you look on back on this fantastic international career?
1: Getting involved in China in 1993 was a gift, right? I I followed the arc of an unbelievable story in the, you know, human existence of economic development, migration, development. Just unbelievable, and to have been a witness of that, and ultimately a participant through some of that in the in the small way that I that I have been is um, I have gained so 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 much from, and I'm so grateful to have an understanding of China and and level of engagement with China, which I think is a critical story for for our time. Um, I think it's also given me the ability to do a few things. You know, one is to sit with paradox right, to hold sort of two conflicting ideas in your mind and continue to thrive beyond language. It's also taught me something very, very important, which is that the internationalization of education is not the westernization of education. If we truly want to talk about global citizenship, we truly want to talk about a world that is internationalized. It must, must make space for both East and West. Uh, and And I think without my opportunity in China, I would not understand that.
0: And what's next for you? What's your next career target?
1: My second mountain, uh, China was my first. My second mountain is, I'm focused in Vietnam right now. I'm the director of East Asia education for the entity that I work for. So I do get to focus on a few different countries, but I'm here in Hanoi and I'm just starting the process of learning about the Vietnamese education system and uh, you know Vietnam's relationship with the world. It's a fascinating time. I'm a global politics teacher, so I can't imagine a better gift than to be starting to look at Asia from a new lens And always uh, continuing to look at the U.S. from a new lens and from a lens that's outside. So um, my next step is to try to get good at what I'm doing in a place where I can't speak the language at all. So in China, I had Chinese and I speak no Vietnamese. So that's a new challenge for me. Who
0: would you say should listen to this episode? And what's your message?
1: I hope teachers are listening. And I know that sometimes teachers don't break out of the box of, of focusing primarily on education. And so I do hope... That teachers, especially any teachers who are looking to teach abroad, you know stay young at heart and be agile and you know have an opportunity to um to come to Asia and to teach in Asia and uh my message would be you know quote sunza, right whatever as a rule, whatever is fluid, soft, and yielding will overcome whatever is rigid and hard, and just you gotta move and and be comfortable with the gray. And push yourself out of your comfort zone, and at the end of the day, my advice is always say yes to things.
0: be flexible, right? be a flex pat
1: be a flex pad and say yes. There's too many ways people find to say no.
0: Thank you so much. My mum used to be a teacher. she came from Belfast to Germany, and so she was an expert teacher all her life and it was very interesting to to work with her and learn from her how she taught English. And, and now I'm in China and working with Chinese people all day. And I'm not directly teaching anyone, but I'm trying to let people see me, how I work, what I do, and what they can learn from me. And that's a fantastic gift. So I was so inspired by what you shared today to have a much more broad and much more professional view on the whole education ecosystem. And with this, um, Brantley, thank you so much for being a guest on the China Flexper Podcast. Xiexie and zaijian.